All right, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, I, I really appreciate everybody who was able to make it on Wednesday night. We started our uh, series on, on what the Bible says the, the local church is. We started our study we'll be doing every other week for the remainder of the semester. And uh, one thing that seemed to be a common theme in our discussion as we looked at Scripture and what it says about the church is that the church is not merely a building. The church is not merely a time slot. The church is God's people living as such. And uh, Shalom Sunday for us, uh, just kind of adding to Uh, Shalom Sunday for us is us seeking to exemplify that in the way that we worship. That next weekend we will worship together, but we will worship together in biblical ways um, outside of of maybe what is norm for us or what is comfortable. The Bible tells us that true religion that is pure and spotless is to uh, care for widows and orphans in their time of need. And I'm so glad when Alex let me know about the work that he put in to to find this opportunity with Children's Haven. Uh, My wife and I we were foster parents for several years uh, here in Jasper County, and in Jasper County, there are 600-plus kids in foster care um, at any given time, which those are essentially orphans. We just use a different term today. And Children's Haven, most of the time, there are not uh, there are not enough foster placements in our county for those kids, for those 600 and some odd kids. Uh, it's not uncommon for caseworkers to have kids here at our local DFS office on 7th Street that spend the night sleeping in offices because there's just not a place for them to go to. Children's Haven, um, not only does, like Alex said, Children's Haven, uh, care, it, it, there, there's an emergency response when families get in a hard spot, but on multiple <coughs> occasions, my wife and I have gone to Children's Haven to pick up a kid who would uh, be uh, with us as a foster child for years because Children's Haven was the only place for them until they could find a, a home uh, for a time. So uh, it's just an amazing organization that is committed to caring for uh, or, our orphans in, in this city and in our community. And uh, it's an amazing opportunity for us as a church to get to partner and love on them. So I'm excited about that. Um, and I hope everybody can join us in that next week. Sorry, I don't know what happened. what's happening here. I had a technical malfunction. This uh, over the last couple of weeks, I uh, a couple of weeks ago I heard a story that uh, was was pretty. Uh, pretty out there. I didn't know if it was actually true, and so I looked it up and did some reading and discovered it is true. I want to share this story with you. Uh, This is the story of Lawn Chair Larry. Okay, so you might, if you're, you might be old enough to remember this, but in 1982, there was a man named Larry Walters, and he completed a 45-minute flight on July 2nd, 1982, in a flying device that he made himself. And so Larry uh, Larry had tried to, he, his dream in life was to be a pilot, and he, uh, he, he wasn't able to be a pilot in the Air Force due to poor eyesight. So in 1982, he, with the help of some of his buddies and his wife, decided that he was going to fulfill his dream. And the reason he's called Lawn Chair Larry is in 1982, Larry took a lawn chair, and him and his wife were able to kind of illegally purchase 45 weather balloons. And they filled these balloons with helium, and they attached them to this everyday lawn chair. Larry uh, was fully convinced this would work. They had the chair strapped down in the back of a pickup. He made sure he had the supplies for his journey. He took a pellet gun, a CB radio, sandwiches, a camera, and, of course, (laughs) a six-pack of beer, if that kind of makes sense. That's probably how this bad idea came about. His pellet gun, his plan was that he would go in the air, and when he got to the right altitude, he would use the pellet gun to slowly shoot the balloons to level things off and then to ultimately land when he wanted to. 
What they didn't plan is once they once his buddies they they put him in the chair, they cut the straps, and he within seconds shot sixty you know sixty feet in the air within just a few seconds. He shot out of the back of the bed like a bullet, and he then proceeded to fly one hundred miles. He uh, tra- his flight went from San Pedro, California, and then he ended up violating air sport, airspace at the Los Angeles National Airport, over a hundred miles away. He, uh, at times, he, he didn't really plan for the altitude. He ended up losing consciousness a couple times. But in the end, in Los Angeles, they were able to essentially lasso him and bring him down. This is a true historical event uh, that doesn't get the credit I feel it deserves. You should look this up and read more about this. While this is a really funny story and a really difficult thing to imagine or a funny thing to picture in our, picture in our head, it's also kind of a tragic tale. When Larry, uh, Larry, you know, obviously was apprehended by the police, he actually got off really lucky. Folks, you know, I don't know how he did it, but he only got a $1,500 fine. Uh, but when the police got him down and they were interviewing him, they asked him the question, of course, the natural question, why, why would you do this? And his response, uh, it seems really simple, but it's kind of profound if you think about it. One of the things he said is, I was, I was tired of just sitting around. You know, Larry had something in him that felt that he was created for something more than just sitting around. And he just got tired of, of not ever feeling that fulfilled, of not ever doing what it is he dreamed to do. And so he said, I just got tired of just sitting around. And while that, uh, his story takes an even darker turn, 11 years later after that, uh, Larry would end up taking his life. As he uh, never ultimately, he, to the end of his days, he, he, let, he, he struggled with that sorrow and carried that weight. It seems that Larry believed that he was created for more. And I tell you this story because this morning and as we dig through the book of Galatians, Paul reminds us that we were created for more than just sitting around. That oftentimes when we feel those feelings, oftentimes, like there's probably, none of us would probably do that, okay? Maybe just a couple of us. But we can relate to Larry um, in that term. Sometimes you just, sometimes we're just tired of sitting around. And that truth in us, that feeling that we were meant for more than this can rise up. And Paul reminds the church and Paul ministers as one who knew and believed that he was created for more. And in this, in our text today, He says, because the gospel has been entrusted to us, that we are a people as Christians who have been entrusted with the gospel is the terminology that Paul will use today. And because of that truth, we were created for much more than the status quo. I'm going to pray this morning, and then we will dive into our text in Galatians 2. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. That, uh, that you love us, that you care for us, Lord, that you brought us here to this place today uh, to be encouraged by your word. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Um, I pray that uh, you would stir our hearts and uh, just, just give us a clearer picture of who you are and who you intend us to be. Lord, I pray uh, that all the distractions of our of, uh, that, uh, that seek to, to guide our heart other places or um, to, to block our thoughts of you, I pray that they would go by the wayside and that you would fix our gaze solely on you and you alone this morning. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. 
So last week we finished up uh, chapter 1 of Galatians, and what we saw in the book of Galatians is that essentially there's a bit of a coup in the church as you have um, those who were uh, rescued by the gospel through the word being proclaimed by Paul, and they were rescued by the truth of the gospel, which is grace and grace alone. And um, all of a sudden they're beginning to interact and be involved with kind of some of the Jewish believers who also believe, but they, they, they're still clinging to their heritage pretty tightly and so for them, the gospel is Jesus plus obedience to the law. And Paul has got word of this, and he is seeking to remind and encourage the churches in Galatia with the truth that the gospel is about Jesus plus nothing, uh, that the gospel is not dependent on our works, but it is fully fulfilled by the perfect righteousness of Christ. The Christians in Galatia, they've been misled. Paul preached the gospel to them. And saved them, and, and God saved them through its power. However, now others are coming and preaching something different. They are preaching that the gospel is Jesus plus obedience to the law. What's important to note is these aren't blatant heretics. They're Jewish believers who are convinced that the apostles in Jerusalem hold to this same teaching. And so the question naturally arises amongst the church: Are the apostles? preaching different messages? Are they not unified regarding the gospel? Because these folks that are talking to the churches in Galatia that are teaching them this Jesus plus theology, they are doing so in the name of the apostles who are in Jerusalem, guys like Peter and James and John. They're claiming that this is the truth that they hold too. And so the church is left just in this really uncomfortable position of Paul said this, but supposedly the apostles in Jerusalem are saying something else. And so they're naturally frustrated. How can that be? How can one be, how can they be apostles if they don't agree on the true gospel? And so here today in Galatians chapter 2 is we're going to see that Paul actually journeys to Jerusalem to set this straight and to make sure that everything is clear. Uh, Paul goes to Jerusalem because God tells him to, and he's going to consult with the apostles regarding the gospel he has been preaching and as he has ministered to the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be today, and it is ultimately Paul answering the question of the church regarding the unity of the apostles. Uh, here in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see that unity is something that is worth fighting for in the local church. And so we'll start with Galatians uh, chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, his point is to tell the church uh, when, with whom, and why he went to Jerusalem. It says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So uh, he tells us here in this text, this is 14 years after the last time he went to Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, Paul made a trip to Jerusalem just three years after Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Here he describes this second trip to Jerusalem 14 years later. The reason he's so specific about this time gap is because you might remember in Galatians 1, kind of the point, one of the things Paul wanted to drive home to them is that he received the gospel through Jesus. That what he believed, what he knew to be true didn't come from man, it wasn't, uh, didn't come from man, it came from Christ and Christ himself. He demonstrated that the gospel came by a revelation from Christ um, by making clear that he, he, there was a 14-year gap between the time he originally met the apostles 
apostles and the second time he's come up. These two visits over 14 years demonstrate that Paul did not sit at the feet of the apostles um, to learn the gospel, that he ultimately received that from Christ and Christ alone. And then he says that he took with him Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas we see Barnabas, Barnabas a lot in Scripture. Barnabas is a well-respected, mature believer who is well thought of amongst the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verses 20 through 26, uh, we see that demonstrated. It says this. Maybe it's thunder. I don't know. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so the church in Jerusalem, the church started in Jerusalem, and the apostles heard of these great things that are happening in Antioch. So they took this young guy, Barnabas, to go to Antioch and, and see like, and experience what's happening. Barnabas goes, sees that Antioch is ripe for the gospel, that this is a place where God is moving and seeking to expand his church. And so one of the first things he does is he goes and finds his buddy Paul and says, man, you, you've got to come here. You've got to be here. You've got to see what's happening. And so ultimately it says that Paul and Barnabas served together in Antioch for a whole year, helping establish and, and ultimately plant the church. And so Barnabas is a trusted companion of Paul's. They've been through some things together. But then he also brings with him Titus. Um, Titus is coming both as a brother, but also as a physical demonstration and evidence of the gospel that he is, is proclaiming. Titus is a Greek and is not circumcised, according to the Old Testament law. So the whole deal here is that these Jewish believers in Galatia are telling them that circumcision is a requirement, that the, the apostles in Jerusalem are saying that. And so Paul takes Titus, who is a, a believer whose life evidences that, but who is not been circumcised, who was truly rescued by the truth of the gospel, and he brings him with him. This is the, he, Titus represents the freedom that Paul stands for, that, that Titus is ultimately an example of being freed from bondage. Titus is a, a son, not a slave, that he's been made a son through the grace of Christ and Christ alone, and his life evidences that. So Paul's bringing Titus, and I, I have to think, scripture doesn't say this explicitly, but I have to feel like Paul probably thought this would force the issue a little bit when he got there to the apostles. Will Titus be forced to be circumcised? Will they encounter Titus and, and force the issue or, or not? Again, Paul wants to address this head on. He's going directly to the source because when the church is being the church as it should be, doctrinal issues are they're, they're not just theoretical. They affect people's lives. And that's the case here with Titus, that Paul is bringing a physical representation of, the, um, of, of what's at stake here, of what ultimately he is going to approach the apostles about. And he says, um, he uses that term in the text, so that, that there's a fear um, that they had run in vain. He says, 
the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running in vain. And so he says, we're, we're going to go to me, Titus, and Barnabas. We're going to go approach the apostles in Jerusalem to make sure that we're not running in vain. I want to be clear. Paul is not fearful that he is wrong. When he says to make sure we're not running in vain, it can be easy to read that as Paul saying, we're going to go approach the apostles in Jerusalem just to make sure I'm right. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul knew what the true gospel was because it wasn't a theory for him. Like Paul didn't learn the gospel in a Sunday school class or in a classroom. He wasn't some fanboy of one of the apostles. He had been rescued. Okay, like we we, we talked about that uh, during the first sermon. When you are rescued the way Paul was, there was no question in Paul's mind that the gospel was through Christ and Christ alone, as as Jesus had demonstrated that in rescuing Paul on the road to Damascus, not because of anything that Paul did. But instead, when Paul says running in vain, Paul feared that their ministry might be in vain. If the Jewish brothers were right, if the folks that were speaking in Galatia, if they were right and the, and, and the Jerusalem leaders truly believed that circumcision was a requirement, this would mean the, the apostles had contradictory messages. And no church could be established on such a fractured foundation. Paul did not need to confirm his own gospel, but he needed to confirm that the other apostles agreed. He needed to confirm that there was unity in the church. Otherwise, he feared that the, uh, that the ministry of establishing the church would be in vain. That doctrinal unity was that important that he literally feared that their ministry might be in vain if the Jerusalem apostles were teaching something different. And so he feels there's a lot at stake. He is pressed to go and to find out face-to-face if this is in fact what is happening. I want to share with you two key implications we can take from the fact that God sent Paul to go and address this. Number one, As a church, corporately, and as Christians individually, we need to care about theological unity. That we are a family of missionary disciples. And that disciple element means that we want to be growing as more and more in Christ's likeness. That we take God's word seriously, that we take doctrine seriously, that God has given us his word so that we might know more about who he is and thus we might be conformed more and more to his image. As Christians, we should care about theological unity. It's important, and Paul, that's demonstrated here in this text by the fact that God tells Paul to go and seek out this unity. Within the church, there are open-handed issues and there are close-handed issues. And so when I say open-handed issues, I mean there are things that we can, as believers, disagree on. Okay, within within a church, you might have people who see things differently. We might we might disagree within a church, especially you know here where we live. Within a church, you might have those who view a reformed view of salvation, and you might have others who hold to an Arminian view of salvation. That being that salvation is something that is dependent on God initiating versus man initiating. That would be considered an open-handed issue that believers could hold to different views on and still we're ultimately still unified. Now, that's okay as long as we are both unified in the truth that our salvation is bought and paid for by Christ and Christ alone, that righteousness comes only through him. That would be Those would be the distinction between an open-handed issue and a closed-handed issue. A closed-handed issue would be uh, the, the, the truth that we, we believe that this is God's revealed word, that God has revealed his, himself and his word to us through scripture. 
the atonement, the Trinitarian nature, nature of God would be considered a close-handed issue. Okay, one thing that's become, I've been noticing, that's been kind of prevalent here lately, is the, the Mormon church has done a better and better job of really trying to align themselves as just another Christian denomination. That when they come to your door more and more, uh, they will you know, even tell you, well, we, we follow Jesus just as you do. We're Christians. And the truth is, what they won't tell you is that they don't believe that Jesus is fully God, that they don't even believe that God himself, they believe God was a man who ultimately ascended to God-like status and that there's even another God beyond him. Like, as Christians, understanding what we believe doctrinally is important so that we will not be swayed and deceived by the enemy or by those who hold and worship false gods. And then justification by grace and grace alone is a close-handed issue, and that is the issue that Paul is fighting for. That this is an issue, the implications of this are worth fighting for because it could ultimately destroy the local church. Number two, the fact that Paul went to Jerusalem by revelation teaches us that Christ wants us to confront uh, disagreement head-on. Okay, there's Paul is under the impression there could be a disagreement in the local church. And he, he didn't go because he just on a whim decided he wanted to approach that. Scripture told us that he received a revelation that he should go and address the apostles face to face. That God told him to not just wallow in this, but to go and approach this potential conflict head on. If we're going to be a biblical people, we must be a confronting people. The church is too important for sin to go unchecked, and Scripture reminds us of that repeatedly. And this is not our natural inclination. It's certainly not my natural inclination, but Scripture makes clear that the church is worth it. And so we have to be a people who are willing to speak truth to one another and to call out sin together. And the Bible tells us there's a biblical way to do this, and we see that the step Paul is taking is kind of the first step that the Bible lays out. Paul was not trying to seem superior to the apostles. He wasn't going to do some kind of stunt. Scripture says he went to go meet with the leaders privately. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 outlines the process of approaching, of, of, of ultimately as Christians seeking to approach conflict, and Paul kind of evidences this with his first step. We're to go to the person directly. When someone has sinned against us, we're to go to them and speak to them. And the Bible tells us if you don't win your brother in that, then go again with two or three other people. The purpose of this is so that ultimately, sometimes we need to check our own heart. Like, maybe I'm not right. I need a couple other people to speak into this and also to be witnesses to this. And then he says that the scripture tells us that ultimately if we seek to approach conflict and we brought some other people into it, then we're to bring it before the body. That it's that important that when sin is left unchecked, we as a body should be committed to uh, approaching it and dealing with it. And then lastly, step number four, if that doesn't work, if the body has confronted sin as a whole and the person is still unwilling to repent, the Bible says we're to let them, let them go that they're to be to us as an unbeliever. Like, that sounds super harsh, but ultimately Scripture's telling us that the church is that important, that that's how serious conflict or sin left unchecked in the local church is, that the damage that it can cause over time is so significant that we are not to, uh, that, that, that it's worthy of that. It's worthy of actually having somebody removed from fellowship. 
I want to tell you when we see the implication that conflict should be addressed and that God calls us to that. This is true of both the small things and of the big things. This is true of the things that seem small to us. Okay, anger, resentment inside of us, when it's not checked, when we don't deal with it, when we don't bring it forward, it festers and it grows. Don't don't withdraw when that happens. Like the great lie of the enemy is that when we feel dissension towards a brother, when we feel hurt, when we feel that we have been wronged, we just we can naturally just want to withdraw from that. And that's one of the great tactics of the enemy for plucking sheep from the flock is when we seek to withdraw instead of as a people who have been transformed by the gospel. Like we, we can come to one another. We can bring forth truth to one another and we should be able to accept that in grace because we've been given everything in Christ. Don't withdraw and don't let others withdraw. Watch the flock. Be attentive of those in our body. Don't let, don't let other people seek to take that tactic when they're hurt. Would we pursue one another? Would we seek after one another and push back on that? Okay, this is true of things that are small, and it's also true of things that are big. I'm just going to be straight, and this is kind of heavy. Like I was, uh, I was reluctant to address this, but I felt all week I needed to in some way, and then Scripture just kind of opened up the door for it. It was kind of a tough week in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you may or may not know the Houston Chronicle uh, did a, a major report that uh, revealed that in the SBC, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention consists of about 47,000 churches. There were 700 people who had, been, who had reported being sexually assaulted in some way since 1999 within the Southern Baptist Convention from, by people who were on staff who were leaders within the local church. 380 allegations of abuse, and they were primarily against young children. In 35 cases, churches hired men who had a known history of misconduct and who refused to acknowledge that or to remove them from ministry um, in accordance because of that. I say this because, like, there are... um, Again, this is out of 47,000 churches, and I'll I'll give this... um, I'll say this about the Southern Baptist Convention. The denomination is a little different and that churches are autonomous. They are not, you know, they're, 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 you can have a wide variety of different churches within the SBC. But the church is composed of broken people. And broken people do broken things. And God outlines a response for the church to be alert to that and to confront that. I can't help but feel and fear that in many of these cases, as I've read details about some of these cases, in many of these cases, and, and I'm sure in most of them, there, there, were, there was obvious pattern of sin. There were obviously horrible things happening, and the church did not follow through with dealing with it as the Bible tells us to. Instead, it was allowed to be swept under the rug. It was passed over. And now it, it affects our testament to the whole world, not to mention far more important than that. It leaves a trail of devastated um, abuse victims. And and this is the bride of Christ. Like this is a, attached to the bride of Christ. I give I, I use this big example, one because it's prevalent today. Um, as this is a this is not some smear campaign. This happened and when we have to own that and address that as a church collectively globally, we have to be able to own that and address what does it look like for the church to protect the sheep the way that we were called to. 
I say um, for that reason, but I also want to point out, like, when we talk about not letting sin go unchecked, when we talk about being a people who can boldly confront through the power of the gospel, the implications are vast, and they affect people's lives. And this is, this is true um, from, from the, all the way across the board. When our desire for personal comfort and our fear of conflict prevent us from confronting one another in love, that might seem holy, like it feels like we're being kind. But that's actually not of Christ at all. That's our flesh. It's our flesh that wants to protect ourselves from a difficult situation. It's our flesh that doesn't really want to enter into the lives of others. It's our flesh that doesn't want to, de- to, to put our hands in, the, in the, the junk, in the difficulty of sin and darkness. The church is called to follow the leaders of the church, believing they've been put in their position by the Lord. However, leaders are to be held accountable. And the the Bible gives a clear process for that. Like the church has a voice in that. And that's one of the things that repeatedly hits me throughout as I'm reading all of these stories this week is where like no one was held accountable. Matthew 18 never came into play. Like men were allowed to run rampant in sin without the church using the voice that God has given it. And that's that's terrifying. Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When this is not evident in our lives, we need to know. Christians need to know. And we have been given the uh, responsibility as a family to be that for one another. That we need to speak truth to one another. And Paul demonstrates that here in this text. Because when I don't speak truth to the one who needs it, which I have been guilty of many times, it produces Super superficial, weak, unproductive peace. But in the long run, it'll make rooted weak. Because it'll mean that we're walking by the flesh and not by the spirit. Like, I get this kind of, when I, when, when I ignore, when I push back on the spirit's prompting to speak truth to a brother, I get this kind of shallow, fake peace in the moment because I avoided something that could have cost a lot of me. But in the long run, it cripples the church. It makes us, we're, we're depending on, on the flesh and not trusting that the Spirit is prompting us for a reason. Instead, we're to be a Spirit-led people who trust that the Spirit is capable of doing what needs to be done in the lives of our brothers and sisters, that he very well and usually is using us to spearhead and to be a vessel for that truth. And going forward, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it says this. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he's going to move from, in 1 and 2, he was describing when and where. And 3 through 5, he describes his encounter with some false brothers. It says this. But even Titus, who was with me, was not found to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, To them we did not yield in submission, not even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul wants the church in Galatia to understand 
that the apostles fully accepted Titus. Okay, so he says, Titus is brought before them, this Gentile convert, and even though he was not circumcised according with Mosaic law, this shows that the Jerusalem leadership accepted the gospel of grace as Paul understood and preached it, and that ultimately they preached the same gospel, that he who was with me was not forced to be circumcised. He wants the church to understand they didn't make that decision. They fully accepted him, proving that what I'm saying is right. You see, I'll start with just that, that section. Paul wasn't anti-circumcision, but he was anti-attaching it to the gospel. There are some things in the church that we may have strong feelings about, we might even disagree with. But if those are not gospel things, then it's okay for us to disagree without division. That ultimately, Paul's view on circumcision, like he wasn't anti that. Some people were very convicted about that, and he, he, he wasn't against that happening. His point was that that's, that's not a gospel requirement. That's not the means through which salvation happens. And so we see this picture of him being gracious, and that Paul, we can disagree on certain things in the church that are open-handed issues without that dividing us. Martin Luther on this text said, Paul did not condemn circumcision as if it were a sin to receive it, but he insisted, and the conference upheld him, that circumcision had no bearing upon salvation and therefore was not to be forced upon the Gentiles. And then Paul talks about these false brethren that came in. So after he clarifies that, that, in verse 4 he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders in private, not to make a big scene. However, it seems that some brother, some false brothers, some um, false teachers confronted them in some way. John Stott, on the term secretly brought in, says, This may mean either that they had no business to be in the church fellowship at all, or that they had gate-crashed the private conference with the apostles. What I want to point out um, real quick on this text is why did Paul include this incident in his letter at all? Like, when you read Galatians 2, it kind of stops the natural flow. Like, the point of the text is that the apostles and, and Paul were unified, okay? And, and if he had went straight from verse 2 to verse 6, it would have really flowed better, it would have kind of flowed beautifully, and he would have just reinforced that point. But yet, he makes it a point to bring up that there's this weird little confrontation with these false teachers who tried to crash the party. And that leads us to the question of, why did he do that? And it seems that Paul is trying to help the church in Galatia to see that there are false teachers who are misleading the people. He wanted to tell them about this little incident because he's trying to reinforce to them that there are false teachers, that they're not just to take any teaching that goes their way. The false Jesus plus whatever you put in that spot teaching that is going around is a combination of leaders who can't let go of tradition, uh, but it's also outright false teachers who are taking advantage of that to gain power, claiming to be of the apostles even though they are not. He wants the Galatian Christians to see that there are false brothers who come from Jerusalem insisting on circumcision for salvation, and that most importantly, he wants them to see that these people do not represent Peter and James and John and the apostles. Uh, in Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem Council take place where, this, where, they, where the church meets together to address this on a large scale. And in Acts 15, verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judah and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
So there's obviously a problem with there's these false teachers who are coming from Jerusalem, trying to carry that credibility of being from Jerusalem to pretend that they're somehow associated with the apostles. Paul wants to warn them that this is an issue and that they need to be aware of it. And then the last section of this text is in verses 6 through 10. And it says this. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. <coughs> That term there at the beginning of this text, and from those who seem to be influential, like, if you read those first couple verses, Paul's kind of smug about them. Like, he's saying these guys that are supposedly a big deal, I met with them, they added nothing to me. Much like today, Paul knew that in this day, there were certain leaders who had been uh, become adored by believers. They had a well-known reputation. These were essentially the first celebrity Christians. Paul points out, that, uh, that their, their status outside of being the beloved of Christ was just not impressive to him. That that ultimately, uh, their status as profound men was not what impressed him about them. When I say it's been a tough week uh, in the SBC, uh, even beyond uh, the, the Houston article, there's a, a pastor um, of a large, influential Southern Baptist church, a pastor that I used to listen to quite a bit that many are probably familiar with. And the church that he pastored has been really prevalent in even planting churches. When we were in, when I was in Fayetteville, uh, their church planted a church down there. And there's actually a very, very small core team associated with this church that's trying to get off the ground even here in Joplin. And uh, this well-known pastor... Uh, was fired this week, and it was a shock to many. And what came out from that is he was let, fired by the elders for issues that regarded abuse, re, that included abusive leadership ta- tactics, financial improprieties, and just really a lack of humility, a lack of willingness to repent of these things. And I'm just going to tell you, like this kind of seems to be a theme um, in my adult life. I feel like time and time again I have been just. I've adored these kind of celebrity pastors, whichever one it was at the given time, who I just, you know, man, I just thought, like, that's what I want to be, um, as opposed to I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like this person, whoever they might be. This is a, um, this is a theme that, that has to stop in the local church, because what we see time and time again is that very few people were made to, to be in that position, that ultimately being a celebrity uh, pastor or celebrity Christian was not, it, it's a really difficult position to be in. And like most people who end up in that position, it just expounds all of the sin that was naturally our tendency, can naturally be our tendency anyway. And it leads to, uh, it leads to falling and in a very public way, that the enemy ramps up his tactics. And we've seen this time and time again. It seems like every few months there's a well-known pastor who every Knew of and had a million, you know, 
podcast listens or whatnot, and something comes out that's been swept under the rug and that's been hidden for some time. Paul, his words are not a denial of nor a mark of disrespect for these men of apostolic authority. He's simply indicating that although he accepts their office as apostles, he is not overawed by their person, as Paul was not... He, he, wasn't, um, he, he wasn't infatuated with the status of men. That ultimately, Paul knew as well as anybody who he really was outside of Christ. And he saw who he had been made in Christ as solely the grace of God. Like, Paul didn't take pride in of himself because he knew he wouldn't be where he was outside of the power of Christ. And so he saw these men by the same vein, that it's easy to, to, it was easy for others to look at them and think of how great they must be, but Paul saw them only as evidence of how great Jesus must be. And that's always how it was intended to be. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, that Paul understood that even his own status and the position he had been in was nothing to do with him. That God, the, the truth that God shows no partiality, that Paul's evidence of that as he would have been the last pick to be the one who would ultimately bring forth the gospel to the Gentiles. God shows personal favoritism to no man. He says, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Even though Paul met with influential and famous Christians a few times, they did not give him the gospel that he preached. That belonged to Christ and Christ alone. The leaders in Jerusalem added nothing to the gospel Paul preached or to the apostolic authority that he possessed. Now, when I say that about Paul, I want to just give a side note real quick because I want to make a distinction between Paul and, and attachments that can be made to this text Paul was not some young guy trying to subvert the apostles' authority. Like, his point's not that, well, I didn't really need them because God called me to. I've seen plenty of times where people disregarded the council of church leadership, disregarded the council of other brothers and sisters. And, and once somebody says, well, God's told me to do this, that can just be like the safe card for I can do whatever I want. I don't need authority. That's not who Paul was. Okay, he's, he's not trying to get around their authority so he could dive into something he wasn't qualified for. Paul was made an apostle. This was a special role for a special time. To be an apostle, one of the prerequisites was the apostles were one who had been given the gospel led by Jesus himself. And so that's why it's so important for him to declare that he was not given that by the apostles. He's not, that's not some sign of disrespect that doesn't, um, that doesn't overwrite the truth that we need community and counsel in our life. If Paul, if it, but but he's referring to this in regards to a different, unique role, to his role as an apostle. Okay, if you ever see anybody on Facebook or wherever who has apostle in front of their name, like you need to run away quickly. You need to delete. You need to go because that doesn't exist anymore in that way. That's why the direct revelation of Jesus was something that he sought to make so known. Paul didn't wait for someone else to make him a good Christian. Like he's indicating here that he didn't. It wasn't ultimately about these men validating him. That like that didn't change who he was in Christ or what he'd been called to. Paul, and then he says that Paul had been called to the uncircumcised as Peter to the circumcised. And I kind of want to um, land this thing with this. There are, in the community that we live in, much like Jerusalem, much like Galatia, there are different kinds of lost 
folks who need the truth of the gospel. And Paul indicates that here in this text. He says that in the same way that Peter had been called to the circumcised, I had been called to go to the uncircumcised. What he's talking about is religious lost versus the non-religious lost. That in our community, in the places that God calls us to go as missionaries, there are often those who know the Bible, who claim the name of Jesus, but who have not been rescued by the truth of the gospel. That the book of Matthew warns us that there are many who will preach in my name, cast out demons in my name, but when they stand before the Lord, he'll say, I depart from me, I never knew you. And then there are others who have don't have that background, who are much like the Gentiles, who were rescued solely on the basis of, of grace, and they don't have that baggage coming in. They are those who were apart from the church, maybe even hostile to it, who are rescued, that we are called to both of those to, to both of those ministries. And, there, and oftentimes, there are different people who have a different bend towards one or the other, that we see that in Scripture, and that Paul confirms that here, that Peter was naturally called by God to go to the religious folks, to those who were circumcised, and to help them to see the truth of the gospel. In the same way, Paul was called to go to the Gentiles and to do the same. The church is called to be missionaries to both. And this requires different kinds of people and sometimes different kinds of tactics. We see within Christ himself, like when Christ is speaking to those who are lost and know that they're lost versus when he is speaking to those who think that they are with God and they ultimately aren't, he takes a very different approach and often uses very different kinds of language. In this scripture it said, James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This was what Paul came to uh, Jerusalem for. The unity that Paul longed for, that ultimately it says they gave him the right hand of fellowship, that the apostles confirmed that his gospel was correct, and it was the same gospels that they, the same gospel they preached, and the right hand of fellowship. I mean, they they shook hands. You know, I don't know if there was like a bro hug built into that or what, but they shook hands and they confirmed that they were unified, and that ultimately Paul had not run in vain, and his ministry was not in vain. John Piper. His comment, he has this commentary on this text. The Judaizers did not represent the Jerusalem apostles. The apostolic witness, the foundation of the church, was not split. It was firm and solid. There was a strong, united base for two great missions, one of the Jews and one to the Gentiles. This was a great day for missions, a great day for us as Gentiles. Paul stood his ground that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for us. There ought to be a warm place in our hearts for this great man of God, just like his master before him. Just like his master before him, he lived and died that we might have the gospel and be rescued. In the end, the apostles affirmed the, 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 the grace that had been given to Paul. His life was obviously one that had been transformed by the gospel, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship to affirm this. They asked only that the church in Galatia not forget the poor, that that's the last line of this text, that it says, only they affirmed, only they asked to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This was most likely in regards to the poor in Jerusalem, that the apostles in Jerusalem are asking the church in Galatia not to forget that in Jerusalem they had a great number, a high percentage of those who were in need, and that ultimately they didn't want Galatia to forget that, that they needed the help and support of Galatia. This last verse just re, uh, reinforces that as the church, we are one family. 
that it's never us first, that the gospel is a gospel uh, that leads us to desire to share the truth and to be a blessing to the world. We are first and foremost kingdom people amongst all other allegiances. And that's uh, we, we see that here even in the way that Jerusalem is honest to Galatia about their very need, that they affirm Paul and that they seek to partner with him for the good of the world. And I conc- the conclusion, the Christian as Christians, we are, are those who have been liberated from our bondage and we're made slaves and we're made sons and daughters, no longer slaves to be held captive. And Paul desired the church to be very clear on this and to understand this and to know this and to be unified in this because it's in this truth, it's in the truth of the gospel that the church stands. Uh, the church stands on that truth and has made the church through the truth that God gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for us who are his. You might have noticed uh, if you the, the, the artwork that's up that wasn't here last week. We have these four paintings over here in the wing, and we we these four paintings represent that very truth that we hold to. God, man, Christ, response. That ultimately our hope and our foundation as the church is built on the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. That God made things all things good as they should be. That we turn from him, but that he has ultimately made a way for us in Christ so that we can be with him eternally. And that is solely on the foundation of who Jesus is and not who we are. That the gospel is dependent on Jesus plus nothing. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I can't say that enough. You are good and you choose to be gracious to us. We don't deserve that. We've done nothing to earn that. But you bestow grace upon us freely out of just your all loving himself. Lord, I pray uh, that that our hearts would know uh, who you are and that our identity would be found in you and you alone. Lord, I pray that your church would be unified around uh, the truth of who you are. I pray, uh, Lord, that you would protect us from division and um, that you would empower us to speak truth to one another, that uh, that we would be a unified family uh, because of the gospel and that uh, that you would make that so. Lord, I love you and pray that you would uh, just equip us and send us from this building today to be light in the midst of darkness, to both the, to both the, the, the religious and the not. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be evidence of the gospel in the places that you send us. I pray these things in your <coughs> good name. Amen.